trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you've been looking for a place that encourages independent clarity of thought, not just chanting bumper sticker slogans in unison, well, congratulations, you found it. Very happy to have you among my audience. This is the place where we revel in wrong think. Mainly because it's kind of a necessity. If you want to keep your grip on sanity, if you want to actually be founded in reality, you're going to have to make some tough decisions, but... Fortunately, I'm along for the ride, and uh, I'll try to be a good travel companion. I've got some great sponsors who help to make this program a possibility each and every day. If you go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, I not only have a page that highlights these sponsors with links to their various businesses and their websites, but you'll also find them listed in my show notes. They include hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Now, i got to warn you, there's a lot going on right now, and I, I was looking. I really was looking for good news. I'm like, okay, today, today I'm going to find something that will just lift your spirits and basically leave you feeling like you're walking on air. And unfortunately, I failed in the sense that uh, there's, as hard as I looked for, for some truly good news, uh, there was not much to find. I'm still looking, and you know, there's a possibility by the end of the program I may stumble across something that will put a smile on your face, but there's quite a few hard facts going on right now. There's, there's I don't know, there's, there's some pretty challenging things that are developing right under our noses. So I guess before I dive into anything, the very first thing I want to assure you is that uh, as, as difficult and challenging as things may be, this is not new. This has happened before. As far as the cycles of history go, we have seen difficult times, and I'm <clears throat> speaking primarily to an American audience, but this is true in, in other countries and in other cultures as well. The cycle is that when, when things get really, really good, people tend to get uh, lazy. They tend to get complacent, sometimes apathetic. Sometimes they just flat give up and allow themselves to be led into a pretty dark place. And that means, you know, very difficult times. The historical cycle that I tend to lean toward, lean toward is the fourth turning, which could be likened to the seasons. So if you were wondering, well, where are we in the four seasons? I, this is the deepest, darkest part of winter. And a storm that has been building for some time will soon be approaching it's climax, and this could actually take uh, several years for that climax to play out. But the common thread in all of these fourth-turning difficulties involves economic unrest, civic decay, and generally it involves war. Just as an example, I'll give you the American Revolution and the founding period. Huge time of crisis. It involved economic unrest. You know, want to Google the term greenback, you'll learn, you know, what, uh, what that means. There was great uncertainty when it began as to how things would, would shake out. 
and people had very real losses, challenges, injustice, uh, you know, sorrow that they had to carry during that time. Now, of course, they did, though. They bore those burdens, and when it was all said and done, and when spring began on the other side of that winter, the landscape looked very different, didn't it? Suddenly, we had a constitutional republic, and the cycle began anew. The next big crisis that came, the next big fourth turning, was the Civil War and Reconstruction. Now, I I beg to differ with the term Civil War because it wasn't two factions fighting over control of the same government. It was actually a war of of involuntary union. One side wanted to go its own way. The other side was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, you don't, and by force retained them and forced them to remain within the control of, of a centralized government. That was an ugly period. Hundreds of thousands of people died. Many more were displaced and starved. And, you know, uh, one form of slavery was replaced with a more general form of slavery under a centralized national government. I understand that's an unpopular point of view, but that's my story. I'm still going to stick to it. The landscape was very different when Reconstruction finished. But there were still some pretty good things happening. And, And the country continued to develop and the cycle started anew. In October of 1929, the Great Depression and World War II followed. And again, there was the cycle playing out. This time it had much broader worldwide implications, though. And though the United States was on the, the winning side when the dust settled from that crisis, the whole alignment of the world, the whole order of the world, monetarily as well as militarily, had realigned. You notice the the timing of each of these, roughly an 80 to 100 year cycle? Well, guess where we are? You know, from the end of of World War II. Yep, It's, uh, it's, it's coming up on it. So my point here is not to scare you. Those were big, heavy, uh, soul-churning events. But people still made it through. And and here's the part that I want you to remember. I know you're like, well, where's the good news, right? (laughs) Would you get to the good news? The good news is whatever positive came from those turnings was found in the character of the people who really focused on being people of integrity. And it didn't have to be everybody. It didn't have to be the clear majority or even a super majority of people to shape the outcome of those events to something positive. Now, as as you can see by looking at those previous uh, turnings that took place, those previous fourth turnings, Not all of the consequences were good. And in fact, they set the stage for further consequences that followed in later turnings. And that's kind of where we find ourselves now. Now, the stakes seem a little bit higher. But the same dynamics that drove those other fourth turnings are driving this fourth turning. So economic unrest, civic decay, world war. Not just militarily, but I would say it's, it's happening particularly at an information level and, you know, right down to, to the personal level. And you and I don't have control in the broadest sense in that we don't really have the kind of input. If I, I can't sit down and <clears throat> write a letter that's going to have influence globally. But the one place where I have influence and you have influence as well is I can strive to be the best person that I can be living up to the truth that I understand with as, as great integrity as I can possibly muster. 
And you can do this. And you may think, well, that's fine and dandy. Well, I'll just behave myself while the world falls apart around me. But you got to understand, the world around you is better when you are doing your part to be that good person. When you're the person who is, is, when you're a source of light and steadiness for the people around you, when they can look to you and, and, and find courage and, well, look, you know what? You seem to have a grasp on things, or at least you're not quaking in fear or running around, you know, screaming that the sky is falling. But in order to do that, you really have to buckle down and know who you are and know what you stand for. Now, for me personally, that is a job that is much easier when I am actively building my relationship with my creator. I realize not everybody believes in God, but for those who have that, uh, that basis of faith, this is the time to, to really invest in your relationship with God. And it doesn't take, you know, a whole lot of time. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to, you don't have to make a lot of drastic changes in life so much as you just have to be willing to humble yourself enough to seek help from your creator. I don't know about you, but when I found myself in a tight spot, you know, once in a while, um, that seems to be a pretty natural thing. That's that's where I'm going to turn because I realize that's the ultimate source of power in this universe. So I guess my, my good news for you is simply this. As crazy as things are getting, as, as malevolent as we are finding out some human beings may be, particularly those in, in positions of great authority, God is still in charge. And he's still very much accessible to anyone who is willing to humble themselves and reach out. And once you tap into that, you'll find you can be peaceful in the most challenging of circumstances. You'll also find that there are other people who are like-minded. And I know this may sound mystical and everything, but I'm going to say it. You will find people will cross your path and people will come into your life at exactly the right time and place to make the difference that needs to be made. Some will try to explain it away as a coincidence. I'm going to tell you, it's not a coincidence. There's divine purpose when that happens. It's a lot easier to connect the dots as you're looking back and going, oh, oh, well, that not that curious? That happened at this exact time and influenced the way things played out. But once you start to watch for it, once you start to recognize it, it's almost impossible not to see. So that's the good news. We'll dive into the not-so-good news, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, have you heard about the interest that people are having right now in uh, getting some food storage? Yeah. I have heard tales about, like, for instance, LDS Bishop storehouses with long lines of people going, you know, now that somebody's talking about food shortages, maybe I should do something. I would encourage you to click on the link lifesavingfood.com. It's in my show notes. And to talk to my friend, Kendall Whiting. Take a look at what's available. Look, right now the selection is very good. Prices aren't bad. They have gone up, but the price of everything has gone up. So it's not like, oh boy, you know, this is price gouging. Nope, this is simple supply and demand. But the time to act is now. People are starting to catch on. They're starting to get nervous. 
if you wait until everybody is concerned and clamoring to get whatever's available, you're going to find it's possible to have waited too long. Don't wait too long. Lifesavingfood.com. You know, when the pandemic began a couple of years ago, I remember the New York Times, this was back on February 28th of 2020, advocating for, uh, this is their headline, to take on the coronavirus, go medieval on it. Quarantines and restrictive measures served a purpose in the old days. They can now, too. And at the time, it was like, ah, you know, I don't, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Thankfully, there were voices like Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute who spoke out in opposition to this. And by the way, he has been vindicated so many times over. He has a recent article that was published on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org, about the moral imperative of sanctuary. And he recalls that uh, that headline of two years ago and how the, the headlines then intensifying by the day followed a trajectory from the history books, disease, quarantine, early death, inflation, food shortages, war, now even the prospect of famine. And so when, when the New York Times was saying, well, to take on the coronavirus, go medieval on it, he says, well, that's precisely what happened. It was catastrophic and the damage is all around us. And it's getting worse. And he says, all this drives us to consider a way to stay safe in the midst of chaos that hardly anyone expected. Now, he says, if we're really going back from modernity, away from prosperity and peace, toward a world in which life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, some of you will recognize Hobbes there, we must think of another way to go medieval. And this is Jeffrey Tucker's recommendation. He says, we need to cultivate sanctuary, or sanctuary, rather. It's not only needed, but he says it's morally urgent. Now, the medieval monastery was not just a hideaway for prayer for those with the calling. It was also a center for learning, innovation, and safety during centuries of grave danger, disease, and political upheaval. Now, its focus was both internal, meaning cultivation of minds and hearts within a framework of safety, but also external, inspiring the world to improve. An institution founded for the purposes of eternal salvation ended up making enormous contributions to the birth of modernity through its mission to preserve, protect, and build. In fact, he says, the first really elaborate structures of the post-feudal business enterprise began within the monastic framework. Later, the modern university came to absorb those functions. The idea, writes John Henry Cardinal Newman, was to foster universal knowledge without restrictions, without invasion of politics, without impositions or limits on discovery, all in the effort of serving society by fostering good thinkers. It also served as the basis of research. It was to be a sanctuary, a protected place. Now, there's no need to belabor what's become of that vision. Just ask any college professor. Jeffrey Tucker says a more modern example of the need for sanctuary comes from interwar Europe. Switzerland was neutral in the great conflict and also a host to great institutions of learning protected from the wiles of political upheaval. From Vienna, vexed from the 1930s with the rise of anti-Semitism and the Nazi political movement, came hundreds of intellectuals, people who despised leaving their home but knew full well that it was best. For what? Not just for their lives, but for something they valued even more, their vocations, their ideals, their love of ideas, their aspirations for the future of humanity. Just as a thousand years previous, the books and knowledge that came from the 20th century sanctuary in Geneva ended up giving rise to some of the most important works for the preservation of knowledge and the discovery of new ideas. 
as European civilization descended into barbarism, this beautiful spot provided respite, saving ideas and lives too. Now he says, ideally, we too would live in a world in which safe havens weren't necessary. But sadly, that's not likely to ever be true. Too often, however, we don't prepare. Resources for the building of such places are scarce, and the courage to protect them in a crisis is even scarcer. And so when the winds of change and confusion swept through our lives in the spring of 2020, kicking off two years of disaster for which there is no end in sight, there were few safe places. Think about that. The Internet has been heavily censored. Voices of dissent have been silenced. Institutions that we once believed would provide opposition and resistance feel silent. I'm thinking particularly about churches. Holy cow. We needed sanctuary. If someone had predicted the events of 2020 to you in 2019, you likely would not have have believed it. In January 2020, a few people warned lockdowns were possible, but faced ridicule for imagining such a thing. Conspiracy theorists. In fact, the prospect of such a thing was a long time coming. Now, Jeffrey Tucker reminds us in 2005, George W. Bush gave a press conference on the need to mobilize all national resources for a war on the avian bird flu, which many people, including Anthony Fauci, predicted would carry a 50% mortality rate. Not just among the infected. 50% of the population could die. The world's leading authority on the pathogen told a gullible media always hungry for headlines and clicks. Well, the moment came and went, mainly because contrary to all elite predictions, the flu didn't cross over from birds to humans. Bush's wild press conference faded in memory, if anyone paid attention in the first place. There would be no lockdown, no destruction, no abolition of social and market functioning, for now. That would wait 15 years. And Jeffrey Tucker says we should have paid attention. These early statements foreshadowed the government's response in the event of a real pandemic. They would use all the force of wartime to stamp out the pathogen. It would be an experiment, somewhat like the Iraq war was an experiment in remaking a whole region. What was left in its wake was a disaster. But somehow it did not become a deterrent to another millenarian crusade. SARS-CoV-1 of 2003 threatened to become a global pandemic, but somehow did not. Many people credited interventions by the World Health Organization, rightly or wrongly, but that latter experience encouraged the disease mitigators maybe planning compulsion, track and trace, and quarantine really can work to suppress a virus. The flu panic of 2009, remember this one, H1N1, came with too many distractions. There was a financial crisis to deal with, and Obama couldn't get interested. History was waiting for the perfect storm, the right virus, the right political moment, the right consensus at the top for extreme measures. The discovery of the Wuhan virus in January 2020, though it had already been in the U.S. for some six months earlier, offered an opportunity to try something completely new. Two years after the before times, well, we know what that achieved. The lockdowns blindsided nearly everyone but a handful of people at the top. Our lives were thrown into chaos, and it wasn't just the lockdowns. What was incredibly conspicuous was the strange absence of opposition. One might have expected that a slew of intellectuals, not to mention political agitators, would have risen up in loud opposition, which might have caused the courts to act in the streets to fill with angry citizens. What we got instead was near silence. Now, he says, to be sure, there were a few of us speaking out, but it was strange. We felt like we were yelling into a hollow canyon. canyon rather, We had no real backing. In fact, it was worse. 
We were called terrible names. We couldn't get an audience. We couldn't get much attention for a contrary view at all. As the months went on, finally a few daring souls figured out how to break the silence, and the result was the Great Barrington Declaration. Almost immediately, the ceiling fell onto their heads. There was a concerted attempt to disparage them, smear them, destroy them, silence them. The people who signed the declaration in earnest also faced reprisal and cancellation. And we know where that led, right? That treatment was a foreshadowing of what would happen to anyone who questioned the narrative. I'm going to come back to Jeffrey Tucker's commentary here in just a few moments. There is a link provided in my show notes. You can access it at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. First of all, let me applaud you on your courage of sticking with me so far. I'll make it worth your while if you can stay with me through the whole program. Also want to mention SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. There's a link in my show notes to this wonderful business. If you are fortunate enough to live in southern Utah, you have such a resource at your fingertips. Seriously, if anybody within your circle of influence or in your family is into sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting, I mean, these are useful skills to have, right? I mean, it's great to be able to, to fabricate or to fix your own clothing or to, to create family heirlooms and that sort of thing. But it's also just a, just a wonderful resource to have at your disposal. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com has it all. The machines, the technology to, and the technicians to keep them running and fix them long after you bought them. They'll even teach you how to use them. Free classes. I'm not kidding. They, they will show you how to put these machines to the best use. Fabric, threads, everything you need, all the supplies, right there in one place. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So I'm sharing this article from the Brownstone Institute from Jeffrey Tucker about the moral imperative of sanctuary. And I I like how he's recounting how this played out starting two years ago where there was there was this need to lock things down. We're going to we're going to approach this pandemic different than we have any other pandemic. And hardly anyone spoke out. I mean, there came a time in late 2020 where the Great Barrington Declaration was written and published but of course the people who <clears throat> the people who signed that declaration faced reprisal, cancellation, there was a very concerted attempt to silence them. And quickly after that, the purges began <clears throat> in all areas of society. Censorship blocked dissidents from posting in channels that could reach the multitudes. YouTube channels with vast followers disappeared overnight. LinkedIn took down accounts. Then the firings began, using vaccine compliance as the excuse. Academia, the public sector, corporations, media, everything was hit. The vaccine mandates provided the legal excuse to purge non-compliers. And so millions of lives were sent into a wild upheaval for a virus with a 99.8% survival rate. And that would become endemic the way that all previous viruses had, through herd immunity. We look back with shock at what hit us, and now we live amidst the carnage, which includes travel and trade wreckage plus inflation that's shredding household budgets. And there seems to be no end to the upheaval. With political and social division more intense than at any time in memory, the world is no longer a safe place. 
We're now aware that our rights and liberties are conditional and can be taken away at any time. The post-pandemic, pre-war, pre-depression world today is governed by ideologies that pretend to be diametrically opposed, but that actually share enormous presumptions in common. What's being marginalized is simple. It is freedom itself. Now here he talks about, Jeffrey Tucker talks about some of the things that that uh, particularly influenced him when he, when he saw the lockdowns break out. He was concerned to see the arts shut down. But he says, at the time, little did, did I or anyone else know what was in store for us. Two weeks lasted two years in many places. Remember, two weeks to flatten the curve, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. We live among the wreckage, among which is a soaring, infl- is a soaring inflation and a war that could widen regionally or perhaps even globally alongside a rising threat of famine in previously prosperous countries. It's like cascading failures, right? This this disaster was neither foretold nor expected, but it came anyway. Now, he says, back to the problem of silence. Those who should have spoken out did not. And he asks, why? It was a combination of factors ranging from ignorance to fear. Mostly it was about conformity with prevailing media and political messaging. In those days, the only approved emotion was fear and panic. And those who refused to go along were called astonishing names. Eventually, they went quiet. Some people have never recovered from the psychological trauma. In the ensuing months, we saw the unfolding of the madness of crowds, both reacting to and fueling the state response. Today, he says, we live in a world more devoid of sanctuaries, places to protect and preserve, to keep great minds and great ideas safe. The surveillance state has made them ever less viable. Not even traditional island havens were safe. But still, we need sanctuary. We must innovate, be smart and strategic, and persevere with determination and courage. Now he says people ask about the long-term vision of the Brownstone Institute, but he says it's to do exactly what we've done for the last year in the future, in both good times and bad, to give voice to those who believe in principles, truth, and freedom, regardless of political wins. And we intend to do this uh, for many years ahead. He says it's not only about resistance, but also rebuilding not giving up on the dream of peace and prosperity, along with logic, science, and truth, even when so many have stopped believing. We welcome supporters of this vision. In fact, he says, we need you, and so does the future of of civilization. They wanted to go medieval, and so we will, not through acquiescence to despotism, but by dedicating our work to the rebuilding of the good life, guarding the right of truth to be heard, and supporting the ideas and people who are courageous enough to defend rights and freedoms when it matters most. I told you I was having a hard time finding good news, but the fact that uh, there are organizations like the Brownstone Institute and others that are working to this end, that is good news. Even if you feel like, well, but it's just them against this whole ocean of, you know, others out there influencing things for, for the worse, it doesn't matter. Someone needs to stand up and push back. And I suspect the fact that you're listening to this program, the fact that you've stuck with me so far, means that you're probably one of those individuals. So what could you and I be doing to create greater sanctuary wherever we happen to be standing? I can't answer that question, okay? This is not something I can sum up, you know, in the next five minutes. I I don't know. But I'm confident that there's something that we can do. And I think it starts with building community. I think it starts with networking with people who are like-minded, 
who are determined to build those parallel structures that can allow us to opt out of a system that seems determined to just keep us, you know, straight-jacketed and muzzled for our own safety. Make them obsolete. Make them irrelevant. In fact, I want to share with you some excerpts from an article by Christopher Chantrill. We must make America our own. And I'm just going to summarize here. The idea that we have to wait till the right politician is elected and we have to wait till we've got the right people in power to make this happen. No. Politicians are not going to give your freedom back to you. You and I have to make our society our own. We have to make America our own. That's actually the title of Christopher Chantrill's article. I mean, come on. Climate change is the way the global elite proves to you that they're saving you from a fate worse than death. Systemic racism is the way the nation's elite deals with the fact that its rule of the last 100 years has actually made things worse for the white working class, for blacks, and for women. Gays and transgenders transgenders up next. So everything our elite are doing today from depolicing our neighborhoods to degrading our schools to automatic bail for everyone except armed insurrectionists. By the way, I don't think any of the insurrectionists, so-called, from January 6th were armed. It's about convincing themselves it's all the, pa- the fault of the enemy, the malevolent white supremacist. And it's, it's not our fault. Government's favorite excuse. So how do you make it stop? Well, the simple answer is we can't because we don't have a voice. At least not at their table. The usual suspects are still repeating the climate change narrative as though nothing has happened and we weren't in the middle of a serious energy crisis because of the convergence of Russia, Ukraine, and uh, the German energy wind. And you don't get to disrupt uh, Janet Yellen's narrative because you aren't a student at Yale Law School with an unlimited protest pass from the teacher. We don't get a vote on systemic racism. How dare you say a word against the highly qualified Kentanji Brown Jackson because you're not a biologist. And don't you dare sympathize with police trying to arrest drugged out criminals because you're not a police violence specialist. Don't you dare kick the homeless out of our parks and sidewalks because you're not a marginalized people expert. Don't you dare kick disruptive kids out of school. You don't understand their lived experience. Yeah. Basically, the system is set up to silence your voice. So if you want a better America, just understand, you aren't allowed a voice at this point. And if you want a better America where ordinary middle-class values are center, work, marriage, family, children, a home of your own, or you can be a noble activist if you want, or get creative with sex if you must. But Christopher Chantrill says, don't expect us to celebrate you and put you on a pedestal. You can be a helpless victim if that's your thing, but... He says, remember that almost every immigrant immigrant group that came to America came from a bad place. Almost everyone started out as a second-class citizen, sneered at for their lack of skills, their dirty habits, and above all, their difference. But you know what? They just sucked it up, and they made America their own. And you can, too. And that's the point. you got to stop waiting for permission. It's up to each of us to make it our own. And whatever stupidity our educated elite gets up to next week... We can still change the world where we happen to be standing. So, stop asking permission to be free. Stop asking permission to live your life without, you know, the the license of someone who knows what's best for you. Just start living like a free individual. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would like to invite you to do so. It's not that I have anything super special for you, but I do spend a considerable amount of time each day gathering the best information I can find to shed light on what's happening in the world around us, and not from a partisan point of view. This is not perfectly Republican or conservative vetted news. In fact, uh, I, I try to choose sources that are as impartial as they can be. Now, everyone has their own bias, but the good sources will admit their bias and will refrain from trying to make the judgments that you and I should be making. In other words, they'll try to be much more fact and principle-oriented and a lot less, you know, ideological in terms of how they present their message. All it's going to cost you is your email. There's a big subscribe link down at the bottom of the page of my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Give me your email. I will not share it or sell it to anybody else, but I will drop a copy of the notes in your inbox every day that I do the program. All right, let's talk about the world's money situation, which is getting more interesting by the moment. Got a great article here from Thomas Luongo explaining how uh, Russia just broke the back of the West. Now, before you say, well, is he a Putin stooge? We're talking about money here. So understand that uh, what he's saying is going to be counter to the narrative that, uh, well, of course, uh, Putin is hiding in a bunker somewhere, probably ready to kill himself because America is so right and he's not. Let's step away from that narrative for just a moment and focus on the reality of what is happening financially, monetarily around the world. Thomas Luongo says, I don't think everyone yet has caught the significance of Russia announcing that they're putting a floor under the price of gold. But to be clear, he says Russia just broke the paper gold suppression scheme. On Friday, the Bank of Russia announced... The Russian Central Bank will restart buying gold from banks and will pay a fixed price of 5,000 rubles per gram between March 28th and June 30th. Now, the rubles, uh, 5,000 to the ounce at an exchange rate of 100 rubles to U.S. dollars implies a $1,550 per ounce gold price. And Tom Luongo says, for a few days prior to this announcement, which they knew was coming, the West was running around with multiple bits of legislation to try and keep the Russians from selling their gold. In fact, the G7 nations think the sanctions are hitting so hard that Putin will be forced to sell his gold to evade sanctions to pay for things. They're literally running a script in their heads that's not actually playing out in the real world, but whatever. Neocons never met an ugly stick that they didn't want to use to beat someone over the head with. Too bad all they're doing is hitting a rubber tire. Boing! Because here's the gig. Russia won't be selling any gold. They're buying it. Now, these are supposed to be the architects of the global monetary system, and you would think they are the ones who understand it best, but Luongo says clearly they do not. What they think they understand is that they still control the flow of commodities around the world through price suppression schemes on the Crimex, LBMA, and ICE. They do not. Ultimately, outside money trumps inside money. And he has a quote here. Austrians like myself have always understood that eventually inside money, money that exists within the financial system, fails because it's ultimately nothing more than a Ponzi scheme built on top of outside money, money that exists outside the financial system like commodities and Bitcoin. So let's start with the basics. Luongo asks, why do we create money? To act as a way to mitigate the time risk between selling what we have and buying what we want. 
So we sell our labor today to buy gasoline, printer paper, or whatever tomorrow. In the meantime, we hold money. It's a way to turn thought and personal application of energy and time into a token which can procure for us real goods in the real world. So with that in mind, now think about the current financial system where all inside money is created first by selling a debt instrument to someone willing to hold it. Back to the ruble and gold. He says, because once I lay out the new incentive structure, it will be clear as to why the G7 has no friends in this fight anymore. Davos's power rests on the ability to create credit and sell it at a positive interest rate carry to commodity producers. Now, since base commodity production in any kind of efficient market should be a very low margin enterprise, think 1% to 4% real annual return. Selling them debt to extract oil or gold out of the ground at higher rates than that ultimately sucks all the profit out of the venture. Free markets, when allowed to function properly, grind out profit through competitive arbitrage. It's both brutal and the spark of new innovations and efficiencies. It's the desire for higher profits over baseline that does this. Now, in base commodities, that's difficult at best to do. Why? Because they aren't anything more than a second-order good. First order would be the ore or timber harvested. Second order would be the ingot or lumber produced. The higher order the good, the more specialized it is. And the higher opportunity for profit through through product differentiation or something other than price emerges. Now, that's most difficult to do in improving resource extraction because it follows most of the major gains in efficiency occurred in the past when the economy was less specialized. Now, he says, if the banks are on both sides of the trade setting, of the trade setting the price of money, rather, then they ultimately control who wins and who loses while this goes on. And let's not mince words. It's them. The profit rolls up to those that produce the highest order goods with the most complex supply chains. The, bl- the banks plow the profits from getting interest on the original debt into the very companies producing the higher order goods needed to ensure the lower order goods produce no wealth through grinding out of profit out of profit via arbitrage through the supply chain. Don't believe me? Ask cattle farmers. In this respect, the current financing of these industries is nothing more than a virtualized version of the colonial economic model of the 15th through 19th centuries. Instead of using physical men to subjugate the locals through superior weaponry and bribes to get them to extract the mineral wealth which the colonists take back home, today we use the post-World War II institutions to run that same system through debt issuance for capex and interest payments, in this case, pure economic rent, unearned wealth. And the producer countries of all the mineral wealth in the world are nothing but debt slaves to the money masters in Brussels, City of London, and New York. That's the gig. Since we've reached the point of debt saturation where no more debt can be issued to extract mineral wealth and have the markets believe it could ever be paid back at these real yields, the system has to be reset. And the whole Great Reset is a way to crash the existing system but leave the same colonialists in power legally. It's really not more complicated than that. Now, when you understand that dynamic, now you can understand why Russia in particular is a vanguard of the global South's desire to change the system of the world. It's also the one country that has the commodity production power to expose the vulnerability of of this system. Now he says, that's nice, hashtag got rubles. That's where pegging the ruble to gold comes in. The Bank of Russia is now a buyer of gold at 5,000 rubles to the gram, or 155,500 rubles to the troy ounce. As at a Friday, March 25th closing price, 
of 96.62 versus the U.S. dollar. That implies a gold price of $1,610 per ounce. What that means is the ruble is now freely strengthening versus the U.S. dollar. Dollar. Hello. But that's not what's remarkable on its own. As he explained on Twitter that day, at $15.50 per ounce, the first order effect here is that it implies a ruble to U.S. dollar rate of around 75 incentivizing those holding the ruble to continue and those needing them to bid up the price from current levels. This creates a positive incentive loop to bring the ruble back to pre-war levels. Then after that, market effects take over as ruble demand becomes structural based on Russia's trade balance. Now, once that happens and the ruble-U.S. dollar ratio falls below 75, then the U.S. price of gold in dollars rises structurally, draining the paper gold markets and collapsing the financial system based on leverage, leveraged or hypothecated gold. We're into the arbitrage phase that uh, Luke Groman postulated. So this scheme incentivizes the Russians to hold savings in rubles because the ruble is undervalued, but it also incentivizes foreign traders to hold rubles because the ruble is undervalued relative to an overvalued open gold price. I'm going to share with you a quote. This is from from TASS, and uh, this is so keep in mind, this is the Russian news agency. But Luongo says, pissed off Russians have a way with words. As a writer, I appreciate this. Moscow is handling the details of its gas delivery plans to unfriendly countries for payment in rubles, but it won't engage in charity if Europe refuses to pay in the Russian currency. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters on Monday. The Kremlin spokesman remained tight-lipped on what measures Russia might take if Europe refused to pay for gas in rubles, noting that these issues should be sorted out as they develop, but we will definitely not supply gas for free. That's for sure. It's hardly possible and reasonable to engage in charity in our situation, he emphasized. So who's going to blink first? Tom Luongo says, you hear that, Davos? That's the sound of a ticking clock. I don't know how this is going to shake out. Frankly, I don't understand about half the jargon that uh, Luongo uses. But I'm telling you, this article is worth your time. The charts that he includes, includes are very instructive. You want to get your mind around it? Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the link and spend some time studying this one out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you came here expecting me to tell you what to think, well, you're going to be sadly disappointed because I don't play that game. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and independently, which means you could very well disagree with whatever I'm sharing with you, whatever I happen to think about something. But I want you to know that's okay. In fact, it would be the greatest compliment you could ever pay me is to become so well informed that you outgrow me and you move on on your own course And you don't need me to point you towards, hey, this is interesting, or that looks interesting, or have you considered this? I'm not about creating followers, okay? I don't don't want people to follow me like I'm some kind of guru. I'm clearly not. 
What I want to do is inspire people to become leaders in their own realm, in their own circle of influence. And you may doubt yourself because the world's been teaching you for a long time. You're really not up to this, but I want to assure you, you are. In fact, I'll go so far as to say I believe God has put his finger on you to change the world in a way that only you can with his help. Answer that call. Stand up wherever you happen to be. Use that influence as wisely as you can. And yes, you will make the difference you were born to make. Got some great sponsors who make this program possible. I want to thank them. They include HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Found a very interesting article from a few years ago from Paul Rosenberg. Thought that uh, this might be a good one just to, to refresh our memories about chemical warfare. Now, I'm not talking about nerve agents or mustard gas. I'm talking about how fear, shame, and intimidation are chemical weapons. And I want you to hear the example here that that Paul Rosenberg uses. He says, imagine that some combination of circumstances end with you walking into a so-so bar, then accidentally causing some gigantic brute to spill his drink. Now, imagine also that this brute just learned that his girlfriend moved out, taking his bank account with her. The brute, towering over you, clenches his fist and starts spewing horrifying threats. Your knees go weak. You can barely think or move. You try to back up, but you do it so clumsily that you're grasping the edge of the bar to prevent yourself from falling. Now, the point here is the brute hasn't even touched you, but you've already been seriously impacted. And this happened because of well-known, well-studied chemicals. So then, was fear not a chemical weapon or a type of chemical weapon. In fact, that fear was the bully's first blow. Yes, the chemicals in question were generated by your own body, but they're chemicals just the same, and the actions of the brute were the cause of their release. So his point is, fear then is clearly a chemical weapon. So are intimidation and shame, as are their cousins, guilt, blame, and probably a few others, depending on how we write our definitions. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, Robert Sapolsky studied the chemicals involved. He actually studied baboons, but their body chemistry and ours is nearly the same. Finding that these chemical weapons resulted in more stress, higher blood pressure, a suppressed immune system, and reduced fertility. So the conclusion here is then we should consider these very potent weapons. Consider these three cases, for instance. Solomon Ash found that 37% of people were willing to say something they knew to be untrue if they saw other people saying so first. In other words, fearing their shame, 75% would go along at least some of the time. Stanley Milgram found 65% of people would obey an authority figure, an imposer of shame, and deliver electric shocks to another person even to levels that would be fatal. Philip Zimbardo found that placing people into polarized groups, ramping up their subjection to intimidation, voided their personal ethics. So, for better or for worse, we have a biological history. On one hand, the biological history has kept our species present and thriving, and so our complaints, however legitimate, are mitigated. On the other hand, however, our hormones, after who knows how many generations have been trained to respond to things like authority and group identity. As a result, they can release some very unpleasant and harmful chemicals into our bodies at certain times, times that the manipulators of mankind have learned how to use. Ah, you see where this is going, right? 
Paul Rosenberg says our hormonal responses are not indelible, nor are they necessarily overwhelming, but they do have their effects and poisonous effects. By triggering fear or shame or intimidation, and the boundaries between all of these can be fuzzy, our hormones are triggered as well. And these hormones do more than just spur some of our thoughts and actions. They directly damage our health. And by the way, he says people display higher IQs and do far better in executive control tests when they're feeling less rather than more intimidated. Now from here he talks about Western guilt and says we Westerners are especially susceptible to some of these influences because of our cultural traditions. Now bear in mind that's not a slam on Western civilization. He says, as I've noted before and will note again, Western civilization has been the most humane and forward-moving civilization in recorded history. That notwithstanding, it has its gaps and weaknesses, as have all human civilizations. The particular characteristics, though, of this culture leave it vulnerable to guilt. And as a result, we've developed political classes that are devoted to finding fault, assigning blame, and then offering paths to absolution that suit their selfish goals. I know, you're, you're thinking of the woke, and so am I. In other words, our civilization has been attacked with the chemical weapons of intimidation and shame purposely and very effectively. Now, blame, of course, is a method of assigning shame. Political types especially, and very definitely authority types, thrive upon assigning, assigning shame. Rather, It's worked for them time after time after time. Nonetheless, our hormones, however long-trained, can be managed. Prize fighters, football players, and other repeated participants in violent activities learn how to manage those chemical attacks. And so we who are subjected to endless chemical attacks, both large and small, even ads that make you feel insufficient would qualify for this, we are also able to manage our responses. His point is, we must train ourselves not to respond to guilt. We can consider facts and then repair and improve our actions if they're truly harmful, But merely feeling these weaponized chemicals is not to be taken as any sort of verdict. It may, in fact, be a hijacking of our internal chemistry by and for professional abusers. In point of fact, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year precisely to take advantage of our biological history. And Paul Rosenberg says, so I say again, we must train ourselves not to be moved by these chemical weapons and particularly not to respond to guilt. What do you think of that? I think it, what, what he brings to mind here is, first of all, there's plenty of people out there trying to assign guilt. And, and I think one of the good examples I can see of this is where, uh, for instance, uh, Governor DeSantis down in, in Florida recently signed a bill saying, hey, you're not going to teach age-inappropriate sexual material to kids under you know, a certain age. People are, oh, that's the don't say gay bill. And, and, you know, they're trying to assign shame. Well, you're just against gay people. You're just trying to, to, to stifle a whole segment of victims in society. And, you know, boo-hoo. But they're, they're using that manipulation, trying to assign blame, trying to assign guilt. The transgender controversy, same thing. So if you're going to train yourself not to respond to guilt you got to be able to recognize when it's being wielded as a weapon, as a bludgeon, to either silence you or to get you to just, you know, go along with whatever's going on here. 
I haven't spent a lot of time talking about the idea of, you know, what we need to do is we need to teach more sexuality to our kids at younger and younger ages. But if you were to be, if you were able to step back even five years ago or 10 years ago and consider what is being advocated for kids today to be taught to kids in public school settings, I think most people from five or ten years ago, would look at it and say, that sounds like grooming. That sounds like you're trying to groom this child, you know, for for a pedophile. That's pretty ugly stuff. In fact, I think that's dangerous stuff in the sense that, uh, wasn't it uh, Christ who said something about if you offend these little ones, you'd be better off to have a millstone hang around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. But, of course, we're not allowed to question these things. Or if we do, well, then the guilt and the blame has to be assigned, and that's supposed to put us in a state of fear and shut us up. For the record, I don't like using the government as the the answer to a problem, only because what it does is it creates the mindset, well, then if we have another controversy, we ought to get the state involved and have them decide as well. Look how well that worked out with marriage, right? Once the state became the arbiter of what is and what isn't marriage... You know, that's that's when that's when same sex unions became reality. Why? Because the political pendulum swings. Some things need to be kept out of the hands of politics. But until then, time to practice your guilt inoculation and learn how to resist that urge to respond when someone tries to make you feel guilty or shameful. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to tell you about the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. If you are looking for a mortgage, and this is true not just for my friends in Utah, but also my listeners in the state of Idaho, this is who you need to contact. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I've got a link, an email link in my show notes. That'll put you directly in touch with Heather. You could also call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I want to talk about some foundational stuff here. Uh, The more our government continues to spiral out of control, the more clearly we can see the need for strict limits on its power. Jacob Hornberger actually has some great points to ponder on the Constitution. Wanted to share those with you. He says, number one, when the Constitution called the federal government into existence, the federal government was not invested, was not vested rather, with omnipotent powers. Instead, the federal government's powers were limited to those that were enumerated in the Constitution, which were few. Now, most people haven't studied the Constitution enough to understand that. They think, well, it's whatever the Supreme Court says it is because they know best. Yeah, that's, that's not the case. Because the Supreme Court is a creation of the Constitution. Sorry, but, you know, the, the, the creature cannot become somehow the master of its creator. Number two, the Constitution called into existence a limited government republic, not a national security state. If the Constitution had proposed calling into existence a national security state, there is no possibility that our American ancestors would have approved it. In that case, the United States would have continued operating under the Articles of Confederation, 
a type of governmental system in which the federal government's powers were so few and so weak, it didn't even have the power to tax. Oh, wow, April 15th is coming up. I guess you know, <laughs> that ought to make a few of us wax nostalgic. Under America's, number three, under America's limited government republic, there was a small basic army. Now, did you realize this? For more than a century, there was no Pentagon, no military-industrial complex, foreign military bases, no CIA, no NSA, or FBI. Our American ancestors were fiercely opposed to standing armies, which was their term for a national security state. Number four, the Bill of Rights did not grant any rights to the people. Instead, it expressly prohibited the federal government from infringing or destroying the pre-existing natural and God-given rights and liberties of the people. The federal government was prohibited from destroying freedom of speech, freedom of the press, religious liberty, freedom of association, the right to keep and bear arms. It was prohibited from depriving people of life, liberty, and property without due process of law or trial by jury. It was prohibited from inflicting on people cruel and unusual punishments indefinite detention and torture. Number five, the reason for the limited powers in the Constitution and the restrictions on powers in the Bill of Rights was that our American ancestors knew that federal officials would exercise dictatorial and tyrannical powers if they were not expressly prohibited from doing so. Our American ancestors believed that the greatest threat to their rights, liberties, and well-being lay with their very own government, not some foreign government. What does that apply today? After World War II, this is number six, the federal government was converted to a national security state, the national security establishment, that is the Pentagon, CIA, and NSA, was called into existence. And this is significant because for the first time in U.S. history, federal officials were vested with omnipotent, non-reviewable, dark side powers the same types of powers wielded and exercised by communist and other totalitarian regimes. Now, these included assassination, kidnapping, torture, indefinite detention, mass secret surveillance, coups, state secrets, military tribunals, invasions, wars of aggression, foreign interventionism, sanctions, embargoes, alliances with dictatorial regimes, and regime change operations. Over time, the military intelligence establishment established a veritable empire of military bases, both foreign and domestic. Budgets for the new national security branch of the federal government began soaring and ultimately threatening America with national bankruptcy. And it was all done without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment. That one stings. Number seven. Neither Russia nor any other foreign regime has destroyed the rights, liberties, and well-being of the American people. I'm sorry, but I need to repeat that. Neither Russia nor any other foreign regime has destroyed the rights, liberties, and well-being of the American people. Instead, it has been the Pentagon, the military-industrial congressional complex, the CIA, and the NSA that have destroyed the rights, liberties, and well-being of the American people. There is no way that people can be considered free who live under a government that wields omnipotent, dictatorial, dark-side powers of assassination, torture, kidnapping, indefinite detention, mass secret surveillance, foreign interventionism, coups, alliances with dictatorial regimes, regime change operations, entangling alliances, sanctions, and embargoes. Sorry, that's going to sting for some people. That's going to leave a mark. Nonetheless, it's true. Number eight, 
if Americans are to regain a free, prosperous, harmonious, moral, normal, and peaceful society, their focus must not be on Russia, China, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, terrorism, communism, Islam, or any other supposed threat. Their focus must necessarily be on the entity that has destroyed their rights, liberties, and well-being, and that's currently pushing them closer to nuclear devastation, not to mention national bankruptcy. That is the national security state that was unconstitutionally and illegally brought into existence to fight its Cold War racket. He says the key to restoring a free, peaceful, harmonious, moral, normally functioning and prosperous society is the restoration of America's founding system of a limited government republic. Now, you can agree, you can disagree, but I think he's right on target here. And, and one of the places, and I may possibly disagree with Jacob Hornberger a little bit on this one, I don't know if it can be restored. I honestly don't know if we have, have reached the point where the rot is so widespread and so deep that uh, it's the system is going to have to be allowed to, to come down, to collapse, and something new built in its place. Now, I'm not saying that with the attitude of, yeah, because we know so much better than the founders. Actually, that's, that's deeply concerning to me. Even when I see people, and I mean well-intentioned people, you know, pushing for an Article 5 convention. We need to reconvene an Article 5 convention and get in there and fix the Constitution. I understand that they feel like, look, that something has to be done. My objection is that the deficiency isn't in the Constitution. It's in the American people who fail to understand the Constitution well enough to insist that it be followed in the people that they elect, and in the way that they conduct themselves in their, their personal lives. I, I'm, look, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this so it doesn't sound like I'm just backhanding people across the face with it, but freedom is not something that you get just by asserting, you know, I want to be free. If you want to be a free people, if you want to live as a free people, you have to align your principles and the way that you live your life with those principles of freedom. And that takes effort, and that takes understanding, and it always has. And it means there's going to be heavy lifting in every single generation because it doesn't just perpetuate itself automatically. You know, I look at the people who, you know, Ammon Bundy's a good example of this, people who carry around a little pocket copy of the Constitution. He doesn't do that just for show, though. This guy's actually sat down and read it and understands it, and can cite it to you chapter and verse. He can tell you exactly which section and which subsection, you know, pertains to to this particular federal power and why it was so. Now, can that be said of a majority of people? Is that just some, you know, anachronistic thing? Well, he carries a copy of the Constitution, as if that still applies. My point is, the reason that the Constitution largely doesn't apply is because to most people, it's just, it's a dead letter. They don't understand it. They're not willing to study it. Now, if that stings a little bit, please understand, I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just trying to say the deficiency is in us. It's not in the document itself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. 
Want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I really like Spencer Worthington. I need to get Spencer on this show, and not just to talk about ammunition. Spencer is a guy who has, uh, he has had a most interesting life, and he's, he's one of the greatest success stories that I can point to. And he also has, in addition to running a very successful ammo company, which he runs locally in southern Utah, he is a guy who is determined to help people learn the skills to succeed at life. And these are skills that he has, you know, had to learn and apply. It's, it's not a matter of, you know, do as I say. It's a matter of, let me show you what I have learned and through his own actions, what he's been able to do. But I mentioned this in the context of they, they are one of my sponsors that I just, I love Spencer. I love his company, HSL Ammo. You would be wise to do business with him. If you get the chance to talk to him in person, you're going to find out he's a really great guy. All right. Let's let's talk about a couple of different things here. First of all, if you have tried to rent a moving truck in the last year or so, you will know that uh, the exodus from U.S. cities is a real thing. In fact, it's gaining speed. And I've got an article here from John Miltimore. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. The exodus from U.S. cities is gaining speed, according to U.S. Census data. He says America's largest metro area saw massive declines in population. According to U.S. Census Bureau data, three of the top five metros that saw sharp declines between July 1st of 2020 and July 1st of 2021 were in California. Leading the way was the Los Angeles Long Beach metropolitan area, which lost 176,000 residents. That's a 1.3% drop. Next was the San Francisco Oakland Berkeley metro, which saw a decline of 116,000 residents. That's actually a 2.5% decline followed by San Jose, Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, which shed some 43,000 residents, a 2.2% drop. Now, we are in this new demographic era of California of very slow or maybe even negative growth, says Hans Johnson, a demographer with the Public Policy Institute of California. He told the Los Angeles Times, and it does have implications for everything in our state, from how we live our lives to which schools are getting closed down to how much capacity we might need for transportation networks and eventually to housing. Now, John Miltimore says California metros had company, however. The New York, Newark, New Jersey metropolitan area saw a decline of 328,000 residents, the highest in the nation in raw numbers. The Chicago area, meanwhile, saw a decline of some 92,000 residents. So it kind of raises this question of, well, so why are so many people leaving? Well, John Miltimore says the reasons people choose to migrate are complex and varied. The Times points out that many people who left California were seeking job opportunities and affordable housing, citing the skyrocketing costs of homes in the Golden State because of nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard and other regulations. Other articles point out that harsh lockdowns drove many people out of cities during the pandemic. And then there's the rise of remote work, which has allowed many workers to leave metropolitan areas without losing their job. Jenna Lords and her husband were among the 262,000 California residents who gave up on the state. She and her husband had talked about leaving Bakersfield for years before finally pulling the trigger in early 2021 for a variety of reasons. The top reason was Second Amendment rights, Lord told, Lords told the times there's also the high cost of living taxes fees regulations after living in for months in an rv the couple eventually purchased a $140,000 home on a half acre of land in idaho about one hour south of idaho falls now lord said the hardest thing was leaving our friends and family and the beach of course 
It's amazing the difference in culture. It's a real small-town feel. Now, John Miltmore says again, the reasons people choose to migrate tend to be complex and varied, as the Lord's story shows. However, we can see the U.S. flight from its largest metropolitan is part of a bigger trend. North American Van Lines, a trucking company based in Indiana, puts out an annual report tracking migration patterns in the United States. The states with the most inbound migration in 2021 were South Carolina, Idaho, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Florida. The leading outbound states were Illinois, California, New Jersey, Michigan, and New York. Now, the pattern here is clear. Americans are fleeing highly regulated, highly taxed states. They're fleeing to freer states. The report's authors state states with a lower with a lower cost of living and lower taxes continued to pull Americans from more expensive states in 2021. With a major shift toward remote work for several occupations, along with continually rising housing costs, people are rapidly moving from the coast and Midwest to the South and Southwest. Now, this is actually one of the great strengths of the American system. In his book, Free to Move, legal scholar Ilya Solman argues that one of the reasons the United States is in crisis is that citizens can no longer keep track of all the activities governments perform, as politicians and bureaucrats serve narrow interest groups. Unfortunately, Solman points out that changing this culture is difficult. The reality is citizens have very little power to change government through the ballot box. The odds of a voter changing the outcome of of an election with a ballot are astronomically low, even in most state and local elections. Things, however, are much different when citizens vote with their feet. Selman points out, when you decide what jurisdiction to live in, that's a decision over which you have real control. That That in turn creates strong incentives to seek out relevant information and evaluate it in an unbiased way. You wouldn't move to a new neighborhood, let alone a new state, without knowing what it's like. Now, this is a stark contrast to the rational ignorance of voters. So John Miltimore says Americans are making conscious, deliberate decisions to abandon metropolitan areas that are increasingly expensive, confiscatory, and in some cases increasingly violent, filthy, and dysfunctional. Now, we've heard a great deal about the Great Reset during the pandemic. Well, it just may be that the reset is something much different than people using that phrase had in mind. It may be that the reset involves Americans abandoning high-tax, high-regulatory cities and states for freer ones. And he says that's the kind of reset that Americans should welcome. I guess this one resonates with me because, uh, man, I'm a part of this. And I can tell you, I see people coming into, well, I saw this when I was living in Utah. I see it now that I'm living in Idaho. There are a lot of people flowing to these states because... They are small islands of freedom in an increasingly unfree world. And no, it's not perfect, right? I mean, this right now, even, even small-town politics, you know, can rear its head, and even state control can still be unreasonable. But it's a far cry better than what you would find, you know, particularly on the West Coast, the major metropolitan areas, than, and, and, and on the East Coast as well. I understand why they're doing it. And I have to resist the, you know, well, I got mine, you know, so you, everybody else, you stay out. Maybe it's, and I'm, I might be weird for looking at it this way, but, but I believe sometimes that, uh, that people are gathered 
to certain locations for, for a greater purpose. And I know that sounds very metaphysical and maybe perhaps even a bit spiritual, which it is. I only say this because I've, I have been one of those individuals who has, has felt a spiritual pull to go to a particular place. I don't share this with everybody, but I'm going to share it with everybody now. So here goes. Um, 26 years ago, when I moved to southern Utah, I really had no desire to move to southern Utah. Family and friends were all there in southern Idaho, and that's where my wife and I were comfortable. That's where we were starting our family. We had two little girls, and we just, you know, we had a nice little home. We had bought our first starter home, and we felt like, you know, man, we're getting established. We're putting down roots. But there was a spiritual dynamic that moved me to bring my family to southern Utah. And the crazy thing was, I mean, when I say this is a spiritual dynamic, are you saying God told you to move? And Yeah. In so many words, yes. That's that's what happened. But what I found is after I moved to southern Utah, first of all, it was one of the most incredible experiences ever. and and, And it's still likely the most beautiful place I will ever have lived. But I talked to people because there was a great gathering of people that was happening at that time. This is when St. George, Utah was just beginning to explode in growth. And I would ask people, what brought you here? And it was astonishing how many people would say something to the effect of, God brought me here. Or if, if they weren't necessarily believers would say, I don't know how to explain it, but I was passing through here and something clicked and the the more I thought about coming here, the more right it felt. Or the closer I got to, to being here, the more right it felt. Now, feel free to doubt. I'm not insisting you have to believe this. Maybe it just sounds like so much hocus pocus to you. But my point is I think that there are times where God calls people out from where they are and moves them to places where their influence is needed. And I only mention this because I'm going to suggest that that possibility might be at work in your life as well. It's not as obvious as a brick dropping on your head from a clear blue sky. <laughs> you got to really be listening and tuned into, you know, what your heart is telling you. But I do believe that kind of stuff happens, and I'm very grateful that it did. My life has been better in every way for acting upon that sense of being drawn to another place. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for sticking it out. I Look, if, if I strike you, man, this guy is weird. That's okay. I've been called worse. <laughs> and and who knows, maybe I really am just a weirdo, but uh, I'm a weirdo who is sincerely trying to speak the truth as best I understand it. And, and I understand that there are people who are looking for some reassurance. They are not alone, that they are not, you know, just foundering out there by themselves. And uh, if, if, if this is helpful to you, great, because that is my goal. I mean, my goal is to simply give you encouragement and, and the sense that uh, you're not in this by yourself. With all the crazy stuff that's going on around us right now, um, you know that can be hard to remember. So I got a couple quick articles I want to share here with you. The first one, this one, this this could spark some really interesting discussion at the dinner table. I know it has in our house, but it's an it's an article by Daisy Luther who blogs at theorganicprepper.com. 
would you fight for your country like the Ukrainians? A lot of your neighbors wouldn't. Now, she says, it would be difficult to watch brave Ukrainian citizens facing down tanks and flinging homemade Molotov cocktails at the Russian army without feeling intense respect for them. Regardless of what you think about the war itself, as always, it is the everyday people that are the ones suffering the most. The question is, what would happen if there was an invasion on U.S. soil? Would you fight for your country? Now, I, I want to take this out of the realm of just, oh, another nation coming in? I think that would be pretty, you know, clear-cut for most people. What if it was an invasion of federal agents or federal troops being sent in to pacify a state that was in defiance in some way? Hmm. What then? Well, according to a disturbing poll, you're part of a very slim majority if you would stand and fight for your country. A full 38% of Americans said, no, I'd get out of there. Polling analyst Tim Malloy of the Quinnipiac University said, uh, I'm sorry, Quinnipiac University said, when confronted with a terrible hypothetical that would put them in the shoes of the Ukrainians, Americans say they would rather stand and fight rather than seek safety in another country. So let's look at the nitty gritty numbers. Who would stay and fight and who would not? And this is where it's interesting because it breaks down along political party lines and age groups. Stay and fight? 55% say, yes, I would. Escape to another country, 38% said they would. As far as politics, the percentage of who would stay and fight, 68% of Republicans say they would, 40% of Democrats say they would, 57% of independents say they would. Now, when you break it down to age group, in the 18 to 34-year-old age group, 45% say, yes, I would stay and fight. 35 to 49 57% say, I would stay and fight. 50 to 64, 66%. 65 plus, it's only 52%. As far as gender, who would stay and fight? Men, 70% said yes. Women, 40%. More Americans who are Hispanic would stay and fight than any other race, and slightly more people without a college degree would stay and fight. Now, Daisy Luther says, look, I grew up in the days of Red Dawn, the original. And she says, it seems like Gen Xers like me are among the most likely to stay and fight. And I think part of this can be explained by the fact that many of us are empty nesters. We don't have small children for whom to care. She says, I know if I had children living at home, my priority would be to get them to safety. But that certainly doesn't explain all of it. What about the young people, the ones who should be more fit to fight than us middle-aged people? And I think her observation here is right on. She says, I think our education system and social climate have a lot to do with why they don't believe our homeland is worth fighting for. They've been programmed to believe that the United States is a terrible, racist place and that capitalism is bad. Another poll from Harvard shows many people are either somewhat embarrassed or very embarrassed to be American. So is it education or is it brainwashing? Daisy Luther says our education system and mainstream media have destroyed this generation of Americans. They've erased their cultural pride, made them ashamed of their history, and negated their sense of self. I mean, this is right out of the Marxist playbook, by the way. Destroy a country's sense of identity by diminishing its history. Tear down those statues, right? Obviously, we have some historical moments that were not our finest, but she says, I challenge you to find any country that does not. We evolve, we get better, we learn lessons from the past. Another reporter from Campus Reform interviewed young people in Washington, D.C. 
the first person in the clip told her they feel embarrassed to be an American every day and referenced racist history, colonization, and currently just what's going on with politics and the cops. College students interviewed by Newsweek said such things as, learning real American culture has made me ashamed to be an American. Learning real American history has made me ashamed to be an American. I've long since detested my heritage, but have come to despise the country I find myself stuck in. How can anyone learn about this country and feel proud? It confuses and sickens me. Stephen Smith, a professor at Yale University and the author of Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes, says, If students are taught from an early age that America is a country founded on genocide and created to perpetuate slavery, and this has become the ideology of much secondary and higher education canonized in today's today in the New York Times 1619 project, then patriotism will seem nothing more than an expression of bigotry and moral blindness. He says students today learn copiously about our national failings, perhaps a corrective to an older triumphalist picture of American history, but not enough about our ideals and aspirations. The names of our national heroes have been erased from schools and public buildings. Their statues have been removed. Patriotism requires that we have something to look up to. And the current school curricula has become a cure worse than a disease. So we've got this great American identity crisis. And Daisy Luther says, I was disappointed, but not surprised at the ages and political lines shown by these surveys. But she says, says, think about this. When flying your own country's flag makes you a target for terrorists that are never prosecuted because some delusionally see it as a threat, Antifa, we're looking your direction, you know your very identity as an American is at risk. When people in your country watch a Supreme Court nominee say that she can't define the word woman because she's not a biologist, you know your very identity as a human being is at risk. And she says, before someone jumps in and calls me a bigot, note that I don't care what you as a consenting adult choose to do with your body. I'll politely call you anything you request, but I refuse to dismiss basic human biology. Daisy Luther says, arguments like this have weakened us as a country. In fact, they may be the end of our country. Now, luckily, not everyone feels this way. She says, I know many people who would not even consider leaving. There's a reason I'm living in the U.S. again after several years abroad. My country's not perfect, but it is worth fighting for. Regardless of whether I agree with the people in office, regardless of our sometimes sordid history, tell me of one country in the entire world that has no dirty little secrets, and I'll show you a country that has completely revised history. Learning our faults should not make us hate our country. It should make us strive to be better. And she says, I believe we should fix it, not flee from it. Now, she says, I have no small children who rely on me, something that previously would have made me consider evacuating to safety. That's perfectly understandable for those trying to save their children from falling bombs. And she says, I don't believe in going out and picking a fight. I don't believe we should get involved in the wars of other people. But if someone were to bring the fight to my door, I would not run. I may not be 25 anymore. I may not have the skills of a warrior, but I am an American right to the core And if we were invaded like Ukraine, I'm willing to die on this hill for my children, your children, and your children's children. I think she zeroes in on something here that uh, probably is worth discussion. Maybe this is something, you know, you can uh, talk about around the campfire next time you're with friends or family. I've had this discussion with family members, too, about, uh, well, you know, would you fight for your country? You know, I absolutely would fight for my country. Would you fight for your government? Mm. That's going to be a hard no. What if if your government needs you? Now, my government has broken its contract with me. 
And I don't feel any particular loyalty to my government under those conditions. Now, that's I'm not telling you you have to feel that way, but that's something I've been trying to suss out in my mind. Because politicians are notorious for trying to rally everybody behind the flag. Well, look, now you got to get behind us. you got to back us no matter what we say. Why? Because your country is at risk. Well, if you put it at risk, again, I would defend home and hearth, but I'm certainly not going to fight to defend a system that's doing everything in its power to enslave me. I know there's some people's blood pressure that's starting to spike right now. Brian, this sounds very unpatriotic. But let me let me offer this definition of patriotism. Patriotism is more like the love that you feel for your family, not because it's the greatest, and there's never been anything better than my family in the whole history of the world, but because it's my family. And that means if I see my family in in the wrong in some way, or if there's some kind of corrective action that needs to be taken, I will take that corrective action because I love my family. What a lot of people confuse for patriotism is really nothing more than nationalism, which basically is my country, right or wrong. That's the mindset that leads to some really ugly things because you can justify just about anything as long as it's being done to somebody else. So I've left you with uh, some difficult questions to ponder. You're welcome. Try not to hate me too much, but have those discussions. Would you stay and fight? Would you go somewhere else? This is The Brian Hyde Show.